Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. As usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the lovely Katie Wicks. Hello. Hello, Hello. Katie Wicks. Hello. It's me. You're here. <laughs> it's just me. That's nice. Have a cup of tea. Just get the dregs. <laughs> get me money's worth. You're very Thank tired. You. Oh, yes, I thanks. You, you, could, you could spot that, could you? I mean, you don't look it, no, you look fabulous. Thank you. Well, that's a little bit of concealer for you. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, when I don't, when I'm not working, when I say not working, when I'm not filming more, when I don't have a structure, I've become very nocturnal very quickly. So have you been... I feel a bit embarrassed. I sort of do teenage hours. <laughs> and it just feels like I'm not part of society sometimes. Are you like a night porter or a postman now? <laughs> I wish that would be more useful. No, but I do I do find that my brain about 1am seems to ping awake and that's when I get my best ideas, in quotes. Uh, do you, are you <laughs> an insomniac? Um, do you know what? It's I'm sorry to... Get into this so early on, but it's a it's a grief related thing. Is it? Yes. So in the last two years, like I think it's just related to a, a period of intense grief that right. this is how it's manifesting. What your brain's processing at night? Well, no, I just think. Oh, well, this is really bleak, but I think it's being scared of waking up. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, it's so wow. bleak. Wow. Well, I think when you're not fe- when your mental health's not great, I think you're scared of mornings because you open your eyes and you go, oh shit. That thing happened. It's like a protection against reality, I think. But also, nighttime is like my time. No one's going to email me. It feels like magic time when when I can sort of disappear into kind of fantasy life. And there's something so sobering and difficult about the morning. Well, there's, there's I think a, that's what it is. There's a really pragmatic thing, and I, I know people who find it really hard to 
work at home because because yeah. because there's so much reality there. Even something as mundane as there's the washing up, there's there's laundry yeah. to do, and to create stuff, you need to be somewhere. You don't need to be sort yeah. of staring out at a, a, at a beautiful unspoiled beach, but you need to be yeah. somewhere where your brain could be different and not caught up in the reality of yeah. Dark it's all about environment. You're absolutely right. I've realised that. Like I I went away. I did some writing in Venice this year, and God, I got so much done. I loved it. Because I was like someone in a, in a film writing a novel. <laughs> I wasn't at home writing, so it, there was that extra layer of like you know one removed. Can I can I ask a probably stupid question at this point? Was it because you're an actor and I'm not, so I don't understand how acting works? But yeah. did you feel you were playing the part of an author oh, being in Venice? Definitely. You did. Yeah, but I read um, I read something recently. It was a study about before going into an exam, people were asked. I think they were adults, actually. It was something about that before an exam, people were asked to act like they were a, a professor. Right. And it was a control group. And the people that sort of had to be, be in the role play of, like, an academic did better than people yeah. that, that didn't. There's a performative thing in all of this. I mean, when people say they've got imposter syndrome, mm. it can be something big and epic, but it can be something yeah. as simple as going, I shouldn't be doing this job. Yeah. And... When you are at home sitting at a desk and your child is there or your washing up needs doing or whatever, you keep snapping back into being the kind of person who would never be arrogant enough to Mm. think someone was interested in what they had to say or whatever. You don't feel like a legitimate artist, yeah, I guess, if you were also having to clean up Lego. Yeah, it it pulls you back into that thing of thinking, who the hell do I think I am? And actually one of the questions to who the hell do you think you are is, I am a writer. And oddly just having a chair, all that Roald Dahl bullshit about having a proper chair and your right pencil sharpener and things, which is kind of crap because a really good writer should be able to write on the train and when you're busy and there's a way of doing it. Also, I'm quite good at pastiche. So sometimes I feel like (laughs) if I can act like a writer, then I'm better (laughs) at doing it. That's 100% true. Can you tell me... um, how you think a writer acts? How do you act like a writer? As well, an what actor? I mean is, like, I I've realised this year because I'm writing this book. I love talking about writing more than I love writing. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, I've had to grow to like writing, but I think what I really like is having discussions about writing and being able to say, "Yes, yes, I'm the writer. I'm over here, coming through." <laughs> I like that. Like being treated as an author. Yeah, yeah. What you should do is you should be able to... Occasionally, there should be like one of those red letter days where you get to go on an author tour mm. without having to actually write any books. You should be able yeah, to take, like, take I, the Wildfell Hall with you and say, this is mine. I, yeah, I like the feeling of being an author in every sense. Like, like I feel like I'm authoring my own life because I'm being an author. It feels like it's spilling over into real life. The, the weird thing it's made me is it's made me about 80% there now because there's 20% thinking... Do I need to? Do I need to turn this? This could go in a book. This conversation <laughs> could go in a book. Oh, their their way of standing is really, that's you know really poetic. I'm gonna. Make so you've a... tuned into that part of your brain that responds to the world like a writer. Oh yeah, I've learnt so much this year. I really have. Do you take up when you're talking about taking on the persona of a writer? Is there a writer you're pretending to be? Well, this is it. I think what happens is I I've read much more this year as well, and I've really honed my taste, and that's really exciting feeling, and. I think what I do, and I think this is really common, I think, with less experienced writers, that I, I, I'm very influenced by whatever I just read. Mm, yeah. And whatever I just read that I loved is what I think good writing is. And I think subconsciously I just try and... I'll try and write like that for about a week until I read the next thing and go, oh, no, no, that's clearly the way forward. 
But everyone, everyone's walking in the the shoes of the people they admire, and it's all yeah. There, there's a there's a, a vast uh, misunderstanding, I think, of how much most writers do sit down and go. I completely blank page, completely blank mind, and this is me. Most people sit down and go, I am Joe Rowling, and I'm going to pretend to be C.S. Lewis for a bit. I'm going to pretend I'm writing The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe because I like that as a kid. Subconsciously or consciously, you're always in the shell of people you admire. I guess you don't always see your own scaffolding, do you? Like, you're not (laughs) even aware of it sometimes. But there are some writers, you can tell it's, you know, them immediately. It couldn't be anyone else. They seem to have real confidence in what they're doing. I have a, I have a suspicion because I'm a cynic about this thing that all that is is I haven't heard of the people they're influenced by. I'm, I have the same yeah. thing with, with music as well. But I go, this is an amazing original band, and someone who's a real critic will go, oh, they're just so and so plus so and so, and you play those two things, and you go, oh, all it is is I hadn't I hadn't had the same influences those as those people, so I yeah. can't work it out. I think everyone. Actually, I do love it when writers talk about who they who they've read and so on. Like, do you, have you ever read any Maggie Nelson? No. She writes kind of prose poetry and she just references so many writers she loves. And so then when people sort of say to her, you know, at book things like, well, who do you read? She's like, well, read my books. I tell you who I read. It's all in there. Wow. Like, I, I think that's really helpful to see her sort of path through. Hmm. I get to the end of things and I always want to do, which is a stupid thing because it's just, it won't go in there. I always want to make the DVD extras to the thing I've mm, written. Yeah. I want to have a little thing that you click on <laughs> and it tells you who I was into at the time and I can then do that sort of slightly Kurt Cobain-y thing of saying, hey, if you like my band, then these bands are worth yeah. checking out. It feels like a generous thing to sort of say, you know who I ripped off for this? Not in any <laughs> shameful sense, but you know who this is a combination of. And you think, well, that's a pointless indulgence. But secretly, all you're screaming is, if you like this, you'll love this other stuff that I love. And you want to sort of pass on that enthusiasm. Well, I wish more people did that. Well, because people are worried that it will look, they'll, they'll secret will be sort of revealed if you went away and read this other thing. Yeah, at the end of Carter Beats the Devil, which is a great sort of high Victorian adventure novel, at the end of it, he goes, thanks, this book would have been impossible without Steve Ditko and Stan <laughs> Lee. And you're like, what, Spider-Man? And then you go, yeah, that was like reading a Spider-Man. I thought that was literally <laughs> fiction, but no, you're right. It was like a Batman thing. It was great. And it was at the end of the, the honesty of saying, it's just a comic book. And you went, oh, that's why I was having fun. And it's quite yeah. a nice thing, but I've not seen that in many books. At the end of it, it said, if you've enjoyed this, you may also enjoy it. It's yeah, I've never seen that. That would be amazing. I know a couple of writers who've actually admitted to it. I mean, David Quantic, his last novel, which I really enjoyed, All My Colours, um, I sort of said, well, he wrote it really quickly in about sort of 12 weeks. Wow. I said, how did you write that quickly? Because writing takes ages. Great title as well. And it's, it's a great book, but he said, I just pretended I was Stephen King. Ah, but he does yeah, that, doesn't yeah. he? And I think he's I talked think about that. I've heard him that. say that, yeah. No, I can relate to that, yeah. And it gave him the confidence to go, well, I wouldn't be frightened of making this next choice if I was Stephen King. If I had well, all these bestsellers behind me, I would just confidently go into the next thing. What's great about that is that I think you're still being more you than you realise. Yeah. But it's just... It just opens the door, doesn't it, to allow you to, I guess, yeah, take yourself seriously. That We've come full circle. I think that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, I mean, I I go, oh, have... well, I'm Miranda July today. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I suppose you, have, you sort of have to, though, don't you? Because if you had to sit down and go, I've got to really be very me today, I think I, I don't think I know anybody who wouldn't struggle with that notion of going, I, what the fuck I is that? I think it's a completely pointless notion. I've never understood what it means. It's an obsession with people saying I'm just being myself now. I don't think it, I find it meaningless because everyone I know has changed loads yeah. and continues to change. And I have about I've got, I think it's getting less. I'd say I have about seven quite distinct versions of me that I can fall into at any minute. Mm. I I know them quite well. It's a sort of artificial thing. We, we were joking about this, saying there should be a moment in your life like a like a ritual where you declare who you are. 
Mm. And you, to make presents mm. for you, easier to buy. So you go, I'm really into Art Deco cat sculptures. And then everyone yeah. just buy you those. It, it only matters when people get it wrong. There's, it's such a lonely feeling when someone gives you the wrong present. I yes. just feel very lonely because I think they don't, they don't know me. I thought they did. That is a I fucking hate that. dynamite observation, I have to say. That it's really is. Like, it's, that's, that's the only time it matters about being who you are is when people get it wrong. And I get it a lot. People project all sorts of things onto me all the time. Who do they think you are? I think people, this is a weird thing to say out loud, I think people think I'm more innocent than I am. And it innocent? really annoys me. What, what do you mean? I think people think I'm wholesome. And I haven't really had a wholesome <laughs> life. Is that because you're a performer as well and you play quite naive clowns a lot? I mean, I don't want to. I think I have, yeah. I'd like to not do that anymore. I think it's because I'm not myself much on yeah. telly, so people can project more, and I think it's that, and maybe being female, and I'm quite, I'm not a very um, verbose person. I think I'm quite self-contained. So I think people just, it doesn't always feel like there's space to say. Actually, I don't think that. But they can, but it's easy for them to project things onto you. I think that's what's yeah. so exciting about writing. This. So this is this yeah. is uh, this is a book. This is prose. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. So yes, exactly. Prose, which is I, the, well, that was part of the imposter thing. Is that prose feels so grown up <laughs> and and serious. And what happened? The mistake I made at first. So yes, I'm writing a book. It's prose. It's mostly it's very memoir based. At first, I think I just thought, well, you have to write really long, grown up like grandiose sentences and the most complicated words. That's what I was doing at first because I was felt so insecure that I thought people would think I didn't deserve to be given a book. And I slowly realised, like a really good friend of mine who I really trust who reads everything for me, he's, he put it really well. He said, it's better when you stop reaching. And the minute he said that, like it all changed. That's brilliant. And I right. knew what to Great. do. <laughs> A friend of ours who was a journalist said that once, said you should look through. This is slightly year zero kind of advice, but he said, look through what you've written. Anything that stands out, whether it stands out because it's brilliant or it stands out because it's terrible, take it out. No. And I don't I believe in that. Do I, th that. I think the brilliant stuff, you should have a little bit of defence to it. But he was a journalist and he said the point is, if, if, if I'm showing off, then I'm probably not saying right. it in the best possible way. And I went, oh, God, that's really intolerant. But I, oh, I think that's interesting. But I like but the idea of anything that jumps out at you probably needs looking at. But then for me, a, a, a brilliant bit would just mean a bit where it felt honest or it felt really precise in terms yeah. of what I was trying to say. And I, I couldn't get rid of that. I have a problem with clarity. I, I think, no, this, that sounds, that sounds, um, I was going to say I have like poetic tendencies. That sounds <laughs> Terrible <laughs> confession to Scarves. <laughs> I walk upon Roll the next. heath. Yep. <laughs> but what I mean is like, I'd always be drawn to Autumn. like a quite a watery, <laughs> you know, metaphor that feels very like, long-winded and beautiful, quote-unquote, and someone will go, oh, I thought you were talking about a shoe. Be like, oh, no, sorry. I meant it's, it's actually quite scary because you realise the way you think is, you know, different to how you saw something isn't how... It, it's, yeah. Yeah, and just the fact that I don't even know when I had the right to be angry about something, that's quite scary. Wow. From reading it back, it's like, oh, yeah, that was... That actually was quite shit, you're right. And I was just writing it in this quite detached like and then they did this and I did this and they did that and someone's analysed it and gone oh no and I thought oh yeah oh no <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the things that I find I found like most uh, it's an ongoing process of growing up almost yeah is that when I was younger I thought that my life was the vanilla the default the standard one mm. because of boring and culturally as a white middle class male 
culture is designed to make me think that I am the standard. Yeah. And only when I grew up and I realised that other people had different lives and my life looked different to them. It's a huge leap forward, which you, you might have when you're younger. If you feel different from, from birth, you might go, well, my life is different. So it requires analysis and thinking about. And you get to quite a lot, an old age and go, oh, everyone else's life was different. Oh, God, so you grew up in this bit of the country. That's different than where I grew up. Yeah. Maybe coming to London is the first time I thought, oh, Wales is this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> That is London. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, it is. Wales it, it is a whole It made me thing, feel yes. like, oh right, that's sort of significant somehow. That's an identity that is yeah. that's very different from. Like I don't feel English at all. Yeah, because I'm not. No, no. And it, really, I did. I find them a bit cringe, but I did that <laughs> DNA thing. I, well, I did after my. I think as my parents had died, and I sort of thought, well, that's it. No more stories. And I sort of wanted to know more. Right. I know so little about our family tree. Although interestingly, um, the sort of Welsh version of who do you think you are got in touch about doing it with me a few years ago? And I said, yeah, in theory. And I think what happened, I might be completely wrong, is they went away and researched it, found nothing interesting and dropped it. I think that's what happened, but I didn't check. But that's the story I've told myself. That happens a lot, apparently, on that really? show, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I've, I've heard several stories. I won't name names of people who just, oh, the production had just nothing. had to say to them, I'm really sorry, there's <laughs> simply nothing interesting in your family <laughs> Although, tree. When I talked to one of my, at my dad's funeral, I met family members I'd never met before. And one of them said, oh, you had a great uncle that used to roll down the street in a barrel. <laughs> and I thought, well, how, then how is this not on telly? For God's sake. <laughs> like, what, what were the producers thinking? They could they have got me got to get in a bar. They could have filmed me going down the hill. Is, exactly the same hill. Is it possible like, that he left what? no paper, paperwork behind? Is the kind of guy who rolls on the street in a barrel might not leave a big it's, paper footprint. No, he, he sounds like the sort of person who's fairly eligible for a Darwin Award, it's doesn't he? Family I, secret. I think he's no, off I grid. Think, That's the problem. I think it was some sort of race. That's brilliant. But oh, then, God. weirdly, I my gran always said she was the first woman in the Midlands to wear trousers. <laughs> now, how did she know? <laughs> I mean, she was mad. On doors. Anyone else? Anyone else seen a woman looking like this? No, just me then. Oh, she was nuts. We're now going to try the clunkiest possible links between talking about family and, and oh, self-consciousness so what, what and going into... What was our first topic? Uh, I don't know what subconscious- we were doing. Uh, uh, so I'm going to do... Knowing yourself. Knowing me. Oh, that's not knowing bad. Knowing myself. Oh, that's There's a way of getting there. I'll ring there? a bell when we get one. Uh, I was going to do... The Partridge possibly. Family? Well, to do, well we could do... Um, uh, chat... We're having a nice chat. Hang on, I tell you what, I'll go to the. Why don't we go to the toilet, and when we come back, we'll pretend this didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Nothing there. I think we could just pretend to go to the toilet, (laughs) couldn't we? Right. Okay. Right. Oh, that was nice. That was a good trip to the toilet. Everyone else have a good trip to the toilet. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) <laughs> what are you doing in there? Staining. Yeah, um, Staining myself up. Um, so what have you brought in for us to look at? Oh, <clears throat> um, so for for quite specific reasons, actually, I wanted to talk about, Ooh. other than just being funny, uh, was Knowing Me, Knowing You, the TV series. Oh, 
Partridge's yeah. chat show. Yes, yes. It's the first time he was on TV, I think, wasn't it? He was on the end of the day today as a sidekick. Uh, and that was before, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. This was his first solo outing, wasn't That's it? That's right. I was in school when it came out. And I think the thing about it, well, there's so much, but I think the main thing about it, I don't think it was, I don't think, it, I haven't picked it because it's the funniest thing. And actually it felt very dated when I watched it last night, but we'll get on to that. <laughs> but I think it's the thing that taught me how to be in sketches. And it's the thing that made me want to be in, a sketch performer. Oh, really? To the extent where, I mean, the, so I was like, when, when did it come out? Like 94. Right. So I would have been like 13. So it was like a huge you know, thing. That's the, one and of the crucial years. If, if a comedy show comes out yeah, between about 13 and yeah. 16, I you just, go absolutely mad for it. I just wanted to be Rebecca Front. But I think I'd studied it so much that then when I got to be in this time with Alan Partridge, one of those people on the sofa, I knew exactly what to do because I'd been watching it from 13. It was like a language I just slipped into. I kind wow. of knew how to react so that it would be naturalistic but still aware that you're in comedy but not, like, tread on his patch i sort of thought this is like i just feel like i've been waiting to do this since i was 13. <laughs> uh you work at the clinic where i went but i didn't see you oh no but i i could see you on the monitor ah uh, right do you enjoy it yes i love it it's very rewarding right and um, why well, something about observing patients as they sleep. I feel like I'm a, a guardian angel, you know, watching mm. over them, <laughs> protecting them. But how are you protecting them? Uh, well, in that they're in my charge, um, so I, I could harm them, but I choose not to. Um, so I suppose in that regard I'm, I'm protecting them from the darker side of, of human nature that is within us all. Susan, great having you on the show. I don't have any more questions. Simon, do you? No. Good. I'm going to let you yeah, go. I'm happy to talk nah. more. You don't want me to stay for the phone? Nah. And... What's fascinating about this, I think, is that Partridge is remembered so much for the incarnation that came straight after this. I'm Alan Partridge with Lynn mm. and the Travel Tavern. Yeah. The depression, the, very, the realism, the very, very on the back foot, naturalistic, almost documentary style that then gives you the office. And he's remembered as the sort of the father of David Brent. And what's forgotten is that just before this, he was doing this very, very big, very variety show, very Ellie mm. Saturday night level of performance with sketch performers around him who are all absolutely brilliant, but in a heightened audience mm. setup. And what's amazing is that the character could exist in both those modes very, very yeah. big and very, very small. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Partridge is now totally hypnotised, totally in my control. Is that not so, Alan? Yes. <laughs> Let's just put that to the test, shall we? Alan, when I say the word owl, I want you to be that owl you mentioned a moment ago, emitting a pellet and feeling very happy with yourself. Owl. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. It gets regarded as almost like, oh, they were working on it, they hadn't got it quite right. And you go, no, no, this is a different thing. Yeah, definitely. What's really scary is, A, how young he looks. <laughs> he does, he's about doesn't he? Yes. I'd yeah. say. But playing someone who's supposed to be... Yeah, because he references a... Fernando being at Cambridge already. So he's old, yes. So he's, yeah, pretending that he's, like, in his 40s. And that's what was, what was so... People, I feel like everyone's <laughs> made this point before, but how he's become more Alan Partridge as he gets older is perfect. He's yeah. sort of almost in drag as an older man. Yeah. It's like it's, it's a bit of Dame Edna, that he's dressed Absolutely. up as Alan Titchmarsh, as a middle-aged yeah. man in golfing I, slacks. I love the fact that Patrick Marber's in it and you forget that he was an actor <laughs> before he was a playwright. 
Um, he's really good in this. He's isn't really he? good. I, the I, French chef. I think I really I'd fancy him as the French chef. He's great, isn't he? I, yeah. I think I'd really underrated his acting yeah. skills actually but what Quite i mean unfair. watching it again i feel like it relies i'd forgotten but again like you know at 13 i wouldn't have seen this like it relies on such lazy stereotypes <laughs> <laughs> and but but that's that also kind of taught me like like how kind of sketch works i mean back you know back then not saying it has to anymore but or that it should be lazy stereotypes but that kind of shorthand of like you know it's this type of person and this is what you need to be doing like mm. the i love um I do have the French episode, but the first episode, I love, love Sue Lewis, the horse jumper that Rebecca yeah. Front plays, because also sometimes it's just realising that a trait is funny and that the fact that she's so quiet and unconfident becomes so funny because, you know, that bit where he tells her off as calling something an anecdote. Sorry, Sue, can I just interrupt you? I've just been told that Roger Moore has just passed Heston Services <laughs> and uh, should be with us very soon. Sorry, Sue, carry on. Where was I? I've absolutely no idea. <laughs> well, that, that's not working. Abandon that. Go on to the other oh, side. Oh, I remember, I remember. All right, go back. Right. Also, the, the yeah. thing I loved about it was... the guest who's brought nothing. Yeah, yeah. It, it takes the piss out of TV, and I used to love anything that showed behind the scenes. Yes. Because my parents were kind of in the biz. They trained as actors and then gave up and worked in theatres backstage, basically. So I, I'd go with my mum to pick up Dad after work and I'd be allowed to walk around the empty auditorium in this theatre in Cardiff. And if I found sweets or 20p's, I could keep them. And I used to be allowed to sit in the lighting box and press a button when wow. like, the sort of Chinese circus would do something. It was so exciting. So I, I loved anything from a young age that was like, oh, I'm part of the, I know how it works behind the scenes. And, yeah. and also the fact that, because it was so much about the veneer of trying to keep it going as it still is on this time and then it falling apart and guests being shit. And also it took the piss out of chat sh those old chat shows, you forget which this, I forget exactly. This like, is almost, the, this this comes out, I think when this comes out, the, almost the only chat show on TV that's still doing this is Clive Anderson is still doing. It's almost yeah. like this comes out, after Wogan, Aspel, Harty, Parkinson, yeah. they've sort of stopped making them by the time this comes out. So oddly, unlike on the air on the day-to-day, -day, which gets a pass for being very, very modern and, and cool because they kept making news like this. Weirdly, this is like Smashy and Nicey. They do yeah. this and then you can't make this chat show anymore. So weirdly, when you watch it now, you go, oh, it's really old-fashioned. You go, no, the show it's parodying was really yeah. old-fashioned. They stopped making it in about 94, 95. Yeah. And then you get Graham Norton comes in and reinvents it as a, as a sort of a way of... Avoiding the guest booking on this is such a good piss take of how guest booking used to be that Wogan would turn up yeah, and definitely. not know anyone. But also, who, I didn't, who would be yeah. thrown at I it. didn't realize from watching the Vivian Westwood documentary re recently <laughs> that that really happened. So, when the, the, oh, the French episode <laughs> yeah. where Rebecca Front plays that amazing version of a Vivian Westwood type, and she plays it so well, She's like her posture, like she? the I didn't in the Vivian Westwood doc, <laughs> they show that that exactly happened. They laughed at her clothes. I mean, what if they don't stop laughing, I shall tell the next person not to come on. Oh, dear. <laughs> You're not to laugh. You, you, you can laugh. You can laugh, but look as well. It's really great. Is this a winter collection? Yeah. <laughs> I've never met this response before. So, just as the plaster boots here impede, the bandage kilt liberates. This waistcoat covered in corn plasters, mm. are they used? Oh, for no, goodness sake. Not. Don't be so ludicrous. 
Sorry, I'm, I'm being told I'm ludicrous by Mrs Whippyhead. <laughs> it was such an awful bit of the document. Like, I felt so sorry for her. It was, it was really shocking that they really did get her on. They all laughed at her. There's a, there's a, great, Lawley, there's a great thing in this which I think is really clever about Partridge and is probably better in this than they've ever done it again, which is that it's not straight man and funny man. Even though the guests are just going, oh, Alan, you can't say that kind of straight men roles. They're all pricks as well. Yeah. And there's part of you that wants him to prick their pomposity. Mm. To, they come on and they're awful. This awful man is your voice to say you're being difficult to interview. So weirdly, you like and hate both sides of the double act in the sketch. Yeah, and it's really odd. You want him to say, you're a pretentious cow to her. And then when he does, you go, oh, don't say that to her because she's just trying to be an artist and you're a Philistine. I want to cheer his sort of lack of pretension and his Middle Englandness, weirdly, when I should hate it. See, I didn't. I don't think I reacted like that. I think I was always on the guest's side <laughs> because what You're I found artist, really thrilling about it was that in the in that the French episode, that kind of mixture of low and high art, I found really yeah. thrilling because you didn't. It's like him trying to cope with an avant-garde clown troupe. <laughs> it's so amazing because They're I felt really like good. I knew that world quite well because I had to like. I got, got traipsed around having to sort of like around art centres as a child watching things like that and. I, I was all, I found it really thrilling that um, of course he, he that sort of small mindedness he wouldn't know how to cope with and even that bit when Nina Vanier in French says he doesn't understand how to deal with an artist of your caliber he's calibre. not on your level yeah and the fact that all they've done is just some smutty like mime stuff and 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 Ben is in it also ben amazingly Moore, yeah. that's that was a treat I just thought it, it was really rare. I found it thrilling that you'd get references to, like, philosophers and stuff in the middle of this show when I was 13. And that's an irony that I think Jacques Derrida would appreciate. Oh, certainly, and uh, Jacques Derrida regularly dines at my restaurant and indeed regularly appreciates the irony. Who's <laughs> <laughs> he? Just for him to represent that big middle ground of British culture that would find that awkward, yeah. it's really well drawn that he sits in the middle of it yeah. and is then forced by the BBC, by the fact that it's a BBC Two, he rants at BBC Two with their John Lennon specs. They're forcing yeah, him yeah. to, 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 to <laughs> rub up against this this world which he would like to... He's got... The, I mean, the central joke of this, which I hadn't spotted when I watched it as a, as a, as a youngster, and now going, he is default man. Yeah. He is the person who is currently running the world, the default mm. white middle-class man who runs the world, who has never had to consider that anyone else's priorities exist. And he's standing there... In absolute incredulity that anyone might be gay yeah. or black or not be interested mm -hmm. in cars. And it's just this, the, the, the central joke of this seems to be, oh, my God, this man is entitled to have this chat show. Yeah. That lovely line in the Christmas one where he said, would you rather have 40 dialysis machines or an Alan Partridge <laughs> Christmas special? I think the answer's fairly clear. That assumption that you want to hear that man, it's a really quite a, subversive point that he's constantly facing down people who represent a wider world and he's going no no he's just me and blind spot. interestingly the new alan thinks he's woke yes. but isn't i feel like that's the new joke well, i suppose he's had to catch up hasn't he basically? yeah but he still kind of gets it wrong but i yeah. think now he thinks he's that was neil and rob gibbons's observation they said they wanted to make him more like cameron yeah, they said it wasn't but, quite as funny to make him right wing now that the right wing absolutely. was on the rise. They yeah. said what would be funny is to make him a bit more Blair and Cameron that he's naturally centrist, centre right, 
but is but constantly he's... aware he he will lose his job unless he's seen to be a bit lefty. Mm. Which I don't know whether you do that really it, anymore. Watching it again last night, it all seems so innocent. That was my main <laughs> takeaway. You know, like these little the the jokes about um, you know the Channel Tunnel and dogs with rabies and but it's weirdly sort of so apt it felt very brexity it was yeah. it was it was weird there's an odd comfort to it because the, the, the thing that's really clear about partridge from this point on is that he's hard to watch that was the thing that loads of people's takeaway from my man and partridge was they watched it through their fingers it was like the birth of british cringe yeah. comedy yeah my wife said this what we're watching this together and she's a huge fan of know me knowing you she said I've forgotten how comforting it is. It's like a bath because it's got all the values of light, entertainment, and variety. <laughs> and Wogan, it's weirdly got the same warmth that you felt watching that yeah. old-fashioned. Oh, the BBC's got this. Oh, they know how yeah, to do this. Yeah, because it wasn't like when I would watch Day to Day or Brass Eye were like life-altering because of their irreverence and surrealism and anarchy. And it wasn't that I was—I'd remembered it being more anarchic. And watching it, exactly, I was really surprised how it felt quite sort of mainstream. It was very kind of set up punchline. And I had it is, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's much more mainstream than I remembered. But I, I think my main love for it was well, it's a nostalgic thing of exactly like seeing something as a teenager and going, oh my god, that's what I want to do. I just remember being so in awe of the performances. I think that was my main. Thing I focused on. And yeah, it's a small, brilliant. It's they? a small cast. Whenever the credits come up at the end, each time round, I, I, I printed out a grid of this. I think Wikipedia's got, which is who's playing what. And you went, oh, it's a little four-hander crew, mm. and they take a character each time. Yeah. It's as a system. It's it's based on that radio small casting that it was. Yeah. It was a radio show. So they take a character each, and they really rinse it. And when you watch those, the thing I was stunned by was Rebecca Front changes height. <laughs> sometimes yeah. she's tall and yeah. sometimes she's small and it's yeah. just physical when she's the American singer she's oh, tall I love and sexy that. yeah and all those little observations about how naff daytime telly can be and the falseness of it all yes. of like the veneer of the showbiz veneer I was I was talking to a friend the writer Ian Greaves and he gave me a lovely observation which was he said I think the chemistry involved in making Knowing Me Knowing You is to do with Armando Iannucci and Steve Coogan having different interests. Armando is fascinated by how TV works and he yeah. wants to show you TV being deconstructed. Mm. Steve Coogan is fascinated by the vanity of this awful person. Yeah. When you combine yeah. those two things, you've got TV yeah, technicality and vanity Absolutely. sort of blended in together. The TV has yeah. allowed this man to exist and yeah. in this strange bubble where he might think, even though there's no content on his show, he keeps saying, do you love my show? And the, the, the subject is, why would anyone love this show? There's a great moment, again, it's in the Christmas one, where a load of Sea Scouts come on to pull a giant cracker for a record and the note of the Sea Scouts and you realise my entire childhood was spent watching this slightly blue petery approach yeah. that, that the Sea Scouts were allowed to be on the television all the time there would yeah. always be someone from a from a, a paramilitary youth organisation oh good oh good it's the brownies or, or, or someone like an, an alderman that sort of respect for people you go why are you on my television you're Boring, boring people are mm. filling my TV up. But this assumption that you must watch us while we do this wholesome thing that has no flavour. And you only need to watch a couple of those Russell Harty specials. It's when he brings the pipers on and you go, fucking hell, they're always bringing yeah, on it's pipe like, bands. who is this for? It never <laughs> for made any no sense. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The whole Glen Ponder thing throughout. Oh, I was always obsessed with that. The names of the bands. Let's get to know my resident house band, Glen Ponder and Chalet. Glen Ponder and Debonair. Glen Ponder and Ferrari. Please welcome Glen Ponder and Glen Ponder and Savoir Faire. Ipswich based hotel lobby wine bar band, <laughs> Glen Ponder and Lazarus. Glen Ponder and Bangkok. first boy I fell in love with was because he knew all the names of the bands. <laughs> That's and the it first was the, test. It was the first, like, week of university and I remember thinking, like, I my friends were into it too, but I remember thinking, this guy knows, you know, we just talked endlessly about knowing me, knowing you. We, we're soulmates. Well, I we found, I was names. beginning to find things funny in it with, well, I think I sort of overlooked first time around. One of the things that just gets funnier and funnier is the distance between Alan and Glenn. The fact that he's up so yeah, high, yeah. so awkwardly high, <laughs> yeah. that they have to have these conversations where they can't... Alan can't see anyone in the band, so the band may as well not exist. The band are like Glenn a noise. Has to, Glenn has uh-huh. to turn away from the band and turn round in order to talk to Alan. Alan has to cue the drumbeat punchlines, you know. I mean, it's, it's so... It's very... very that's, that's a very Armando production uh, uh, observation, that the set would be yes. in oh, the way... Yeah. Well, what, what, what it does, what's what the one where he... He, he goes up on a scissor lift. And that's that's the one where, where he finds out that Glenn Ernie. Ponder is gay, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, and it goes down really slowly. Did you go to the screening of this time when yes, there was a yes. Q&A? When he, when he talked about making the steps on this time just too big so you couldn't... Yeah. And yeah. the studio's just too big. You know, he walks over to talk to someone, just a slightly <laughs> too much dead time to walk there. It's a, it's a way <laughs> of that stuff. It's a way of isolating. And I'm, again, watching this again years later and just appreciating just some technical stuff in it. It's all about a lonely man. Mm. And he's this lonely man has got a show in which is all about chat, which is something you do with your friends. But in the French one, there's that brilliant thing of he hasn't been invited out to the Folie Berger the night before. Everyone's been. His guests have been, Glenn Ponder, the band, but he the wasn't clowns. invited. He's a lonely his man. His bodyguard? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, Glenn, uh, 
Seriously, are you looking forward to uh, the high-kicking ladies at La Folie Berger tonight? No, no, that was last night. The uh, plan was changed. What? I thought you knew. We, we, we left a message. Well, I didn't get one. Yeah. And I, I, I was in my hotel room all night. I, I ended up watching a, a, the Poseidon Adventure on TV. <laughs> it was dubbed in French. There was no message. Oh, well, left one. Glenn Ponder, and you definitely left a message. Yes. <laughs> He's on his own. And that set yeah. puts him on his own. He's, he's never comfortable. This is the only place on earth he should be comfortable. And he's left on his own there, abandoned, with a show. The central idea is that he is friends with everybody. Well, that was Wogan's thing. I'm everybody's friend, even if you've booked me a, a show jumper I don't know. And the set helps set that up, that the people are too far away from me. But there's also, there's added gags in this one that don't need to be there, right? So they've gone to Paris to film this episode. <laughs> yeah. And they've got, at the back of the set, they've got a man with an accordion and they've got a bike hanging off the back of the set as well. <laughs> Not needed. Then there's the extra gag of the, the furniture that they use for the chat show oh, hasn't yeah. turned up. It's got lost, stuck in neem or something, is it? So they've now got different furniture, which he can complain about. And there's the added thing of he's growing a moustache for some reason. Yeah, I forgot there? about that. Which he's then got in episode five and goes for episode six. <laughs> you don't need any of this extra stuff, but it's all piled in a load of generosity of detail. Bonjour. Bonjour, bienvenue to Le Monde. Why am I speaking in French? Well, it's because tonight's show is coming live from Paris. Of going to another country. Why have you done this? You've taken this to France, but, but it looks the same in France. And I, I, let, let's take the credits as well, because the, the, the great gag with that is giving him Nina Vanier to work against. Oh, yeah. Mel Hudson She's just a... absolutely oh. killing it. It's funny, you know, I saw her in um, cinema not long ago. I've never met her, but I, it was a weird moment because I was looking at her thinking, wow. Oh, you should talk to her. You should. Talk. I, we we had we had her in oh, agenda. She can do anything. Yeah. She's got a, she's got a brilliant ear. She's a really good listener. When she's being French, she's not doing a French impression. She's oh, not doing a hon hon. She's perfect. doing someone who has complete command of that and is a reminder of how not only how poor Alan Partridge is as a presenter, how unambitious British culture is because yeah. we wouldn't have her. She's like Joan Bakewell times ten. This incredible yeah. Yeah, character. Absolutely. She's brilliant. The whole, she, actually, the costumes and everything, the styling is all spot on. There's a lovely moment at the end as well when it builds towards this climax, and it does. I remember people saying this about this time. Was a couple of people said, "Oh, we didn't really have an arc." And you went, "It's a sketch show. Sketch shows don't have an arc." It's weird how much we've now become addicted to the idea that everything should have an arc. Yeah. But oddly. I'm, knowing me, knowing you, does have an arc because it builds towards a point where he's going to go mad and overstep a line, and it feels like a proper ending when he shoots Forbes McAllister. That's right. But that ends with a beautiful moment where where the whole very Armando thing, where the whole structure of television breaks down, and you suddenly get that car title card pops up very quickly oh, as people yeah. are rushing yeah, in. Yeah. Floor managers there, people are touching their ears, and as a kid who liked television. You watch it and you go, I'm getting to see what happens when television goes wrong. It had a real fit. That's it, how it felt, yeah. It's a whiff of sort of Noel Edmonds killing a man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, it's so Noel Edmonds, isn't it? Like, the bit in the first step, I absolutely loved the whole Roger Moore Chiswick roundabout Oh, God, thing. it's great, isn't it? I can confirm Roger Moore is on the show. We're having him on the show right now. Where live, is he? Live by telephone link-up from, <laughs> from the car on a mobile phone. Hello, Roger. Hello, Roger. Hello, Alan. Oh, joy. Oh, Roger Moore. Uh, oh, um, knowing me, Alan Partridge, knowing you, Roger Moore. Aha. 
just jumping all over the place. But the, the thing that made me really love him, actually, was, like, in the French episode, when she says, you know, what if your arm bursts? Yeah. And he says, uh, in two years of... 15 years of broadcasting and hospital radio, no one's ever came up to me and said, my arm's birth, can you play dedication? <laughs> but, like, in that moment, he's he's really trying. He's really open to it. Like, he's trying to understand. There's a kind of naivety or something. Like, he's really... He looks baffled a lot, which is yeah. really nice. Like, like, he's out of his depth. There's a lovely thing he does, which is very interesting, bearing in mind he ends up in uh, Stan and Ollie. He does a lot of down-the-lens appeals to the audience, like Oliver Hardy. There's a lot of him looking at the audience going... Who are these nutters? You're with Middle England. Yeah. You're with me. These people are mad. Mm. And he does a lot of down the lens stuff. And he th- I hadn't noticed how much fourth wall breaking he's doing because he's got a camera to look down. Yeah, and like he's when he's eating the bollock and stuff like that. Yeah, what? What? How has this happened? There's a feeling. It's a very pre-Brexit feeling of going. This world that you forced upon me, the 1960s progressive culture. I didn't ask for this, and I don't think any of us did. There's a real. He's kind of speaking for that boring little man in. And who, who gets the screw fix catalogue. What I love is how threatened and frightened he is of everything. <laughs> I'm obsessed with that because it's this fear in his eyes of everything. <laughs> and also just like the fear of it, of his own show, like going... It's like that Richard Madeley thing, isn't it? Of just kind of like, just kind of grinning and bearing. Richard Madeley is always the person who sort of he's compared to. And again, my missus did some work with, with, with Madeley and said the difference between Richard Madeley and Alan Partridge is that Richard Madeley is happy. <laughs> and you go weirdly. Seem happy. They're, they're, they're sort of the same person, but one of them is: what if you, what if you are fine with all this? And the, the genius of Alan Partridge, you look into his eyes and goes, "You are not happy. You will never be happy." Oh, and that's yeah. why they could then take this. There's a darkness. And go to the travel tavern and mm. go to the, all those those dark places they go to because I think weirdly this is the time when, even though the veneer is, I am presenting a show. In his eyes is, I am lost. The world confuses me. I feel like I'm out of date. I've, I'm clinging on by my fingernails to my relevance. Yeah. There's an existential dread in his Absolutely. eyes that you could then do a whole There's series a about. Desperation. Roger! <laughs> Roger! Roger! What was so incredible, so uh, doing the last, the latest series was, it, I was really scared. It was a bit overwhelming just because it felt so significant because, yeah, I've been watching it from such a, a young age. But, um, he, I, I was filming in the afternoon, so I met him as Alan. He was already completely AP'd. And just to be that close to him on the sofa and, like, just little details, the salmon pink socks, there was just so much I was, like, <laughs> noticing and loving. And it just felt so surreal and a bit... I had to really kind of, you know, talk to myself and calm down. I mean, it was nice that in my scene, like, Tim was there, who's obviously a really old friend, and that made it... That kind of, you know, was like mm. having stabilizers a bit. But I've talked to Tim about it and he still like freaks out and has to, wow. you know, sort of say, okay, just don't don't think about it too much. There's no one like Alan Partridge. There's no one who's been around for the whole of our lives. No. Most Basil Fawlty is there for two series and David Brent's there for two series. This is a character who's been through Longer than Hancock, longer than all yeah. the people you can be. He's just been part of our lives for so long. And, and to be clear, it is it is Alan Partridge that is the slightly intimidating. It's not Steve Coogan that's that's freaking you um, out. Is it, is it Alan Partridge? Yeah, I think it is because then after the screening, Steve came to the pub and chatted to us all. And No, that was easier, actually, somehow. That, yeah. was, that was easier. I think because I got there and he was already Alan, it was too much. It was quite a high-pressured situation because I had an auto cue 
which is quite a skill in of itself. But the there were lots of last minute changes, and they were throwing in, you know, line changes. What happened is we we kind of read it as is, and then very quickly, like the more you did it, it would just become, you know, going off grid and improvising and. It was just changing so much. There wasn't much time. It wasn't like, oh, go away and learn this new bit. It really felt like high-pressured, nerve-wracking. Was he making lots of changes as he went? Yeah, and there was just this feeling of, it wasn't, not overtly, but just this feeling of um, there wasn't time for you to kind of make mistakes or ask questions like there is in, in, like, normally when I'm in that situation. Mm. You feel like you're, it just felt like you were secondary to this force of nature. (laughs) Um, And you were just, that. you kind of knew what to do I mean I feel like he works with such amazing people around him but everyone sort of knows there's a balance between you and Alan you have to get right and I think it was just no it was just weird I felt like I instinctively knew the title like I knew what he would want because I'd watched it for so long (laughs) but also being so close to his like micro reactions are incredible like I think it's all in his eyes he does that a lot more now than he he didn't know me knowing you doesn't he yeah, he's yeah. like really honed the. He seems so comfortable in that character that like yeah. he could be in any situation. But I, fa- it was hard not to laugh, obviously. But being that close to just his reactions, I find so incredibly funny. But he's had and, years to learn this. Is yeah. it, again, it's like a language. Isn't almost, it? Uh, this is almost like a music hall term. This is the kind yeah. of thing that you'd expect someone who had like fifty years being, or the crankies, almost like you had fifty years honing. <laughs> there, I'm, no, trying of, I'm trying to think of actors who've had a whole life being one thing. The, the Chuckle Brothers. It tends to be those kind of big music hall actors, or Mrs. Brown, even. They can, no one who's in the sort of intelligent cutting edge end of comedy stays doing the same character for 25 30 years the the joke is you're supposed to move on be restless but he keeps finding new things in this character new yeah, depth it's so incredible. you you can have all these different things and what's fascinating about this as a as a thing within that long arc that goes from from on the hour to to sort of uh, this time that they all link up you'd think that if you changed register this many times you'd gone broad audience variety and you'd done tiny web episodes books that they wouldn't carry through but when he shoots someone in this and then does, does a Christmas special with his boss from television and punches <laughs> punches someone in the face. That has consequences for what happens in the really relentlessly realistic pseudo-documentary yeah. and then in the book and then the film. Yeah. The the canon, the world is like like Doctor Who or something. It's been all... <laughs> yeah. They've got this but entire they've, world they've built. It's they've mad. talked about that, haven't they, the brothers? I've heard them talk about with the books that they would constantly go like through go through archives. It's like, like EastEnders. The there's a, there's a yeah. great big Bible for Alan. Yeah. But has existed in all these different things, from sketch show to, to broken comedy to feature film. They all hold together. And the thing that holds them together is that Steve knows is in the centre of that and knows what he's doing, owns this character and has all the backstory, is in the eyes... You've been staring at those eyes since 1993, mm. saying, what's going on behind his eyes? Well, and the answer is horrible shit. There, there was, <laughs> there's, there's an interesting origin, origin story to Knowing Me, Knowing You, which I didn't know, which was that it was Patrick Marber's idea. He said to Steve, I think you could do more with this character. And, uh, and Steve Coogan <clears throat> said, I don't think I can. I don't think you can do anything. So Patrick Marber sat down with him and interviewed Alan Partridge. Oh. And he said that's when Steve began to find that there was a, there was some hinterland to this character and there was something there he could build with. And the result of that, weirdly, was Knowing Me, Knowing You, which is one where he talks to other people. But while he's doing that, he does reveal bits of his hinterland, yeah. quite yeah. because he's, he's, because his valves are very non-functioning, yeah. aren't they? And, and my favourite my favorite moment of that, and the most revealing uh, bit of Alan that you get is in the last episode where 
One of the guests is Joe Beasley and Cheeky Monkey. John Thompson giving a barnstorming performance. Incredible performance. performance. So and well this observed. was Alan's idea to book this guy. And yeah. Alan says he's yeah. one of the funniest people I've ever seen. He comes on, he's got total fucking stage fright, and he can't get any of his jokes oh, right. Oh, God, and, and the monkey and you can keeps see, coming and undone. Alan feels, re- Alan, Alan feels really responsible for this guy. Yeah. And it's just one of the, one of the, probably the only moment in the series where you suddenly see this is how he is when he's being compassionate. Yeah. Yeah. He actually does understand how this guy feels. It's fine. 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 It's Ladies and gentlemen, the wonderful Joe Beasley and Cheeky Monkey. The, the, the extra level in that is that he's booked him because he was on a whole season's away break. He's like, yeah. He was at some, some holiday camp. <laughs> oh, God, my parents used to do that. He used to always come. This was a real defining moment of my childhood. My parents would go to some posh do up, up west or to some holiday camp and yeah. come back and say, tell you what, the entertainment there was much better than you get on the television. And you yeah. kept on to say, it won't be. You were just drunk. <laughs> and also, it's nice to be at a live venue. Mm. It won't be better than Little and Large. It would have been the same or worse otherwise they'd be on television it is really revealing you're right that Alan went out and and that's his idea of amazing entertainment (laughs) that's really telling that he saw that monkey act and was yeah like John drinking Thompson's wine and laughing brilliant to in that, isn't he? oh it's 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 ideal it's that's a piece perfection. of performance as well i think there are, there are moments Just of this trying which to get the monkey's paw yeah, the velcro. velcro together come on you should, and then taking out on the monkey <laughs> like you angry you made me forget my jokes yeah you made me forget but you made me forget my jokes it reminds me of um you know the louis theroux with orville yeah when he gets a bad review and starts blaming the duck he oh starts off going oh you know the duck may me and then by the end of the doc he's like duck. <laughs> what they capture really well is how people used to be real people used to be so awkward on television in yeah. a way they're not now yeah, yeah. it's changed yeah. it's like people know the language of tv and they know how to be on tv but like you say like blue peter that memory of how brilliantly self-conscious people are on tv they capture that so, so well, that kind of shyness of being <laughs> with the mic in your face, that kind of shyness. You're, you're lovely. <laughs> what, what, what's your ambition? Well, I, I'd like to work in television. Really? Yes. Great, great. Well, we, we should have a chat. <laughs> After the show. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, you're all staying at the Holiday Inn? Oh, you? well, the other girls are, but I'm staying here at home with my mum. Right, OK, right. <laughs> You could just go back to the hotel for a drink, you know, just a quick drink, and, you know, we get your taxi home afterwards. I'll, I'll speak to your mum if you want. OK. Right. Lovely. Yeah, we'll have a chat afterwards. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, the sexism is really... It, it just feels like a really convincing, like, realistic level. Like, when I see... It was only recently I saw that Parkinson interview with... Um, Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren, and I... Yeah. I it's so shocking. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, you are, um, in quotes, a serious actress? Um, in you know, quotes? What yes. do you mean in quotes? Well, in quotes you know, <laughs> it's because it's a kind of cliche that people say. But, um, but do you find, in fact, that this, what could be best described as your equipment, in fact, hinders you, perhaps, in that pursuit? I'd like you to explain what you mean by my equipment. 
<laughs> Come on, spit it out. I meant your, your figure. <laughs> My figure. Mm. The question was, do you find that your figure <laughs> um, hinder you? in your pursuit of, of, of the ambition of being a successful actress. A successful or a, or and a serious, serious actress, because mm. serious actresses can't have mm. big bosoms. Is that what you mean? Well, I think that they might sort of detract from a performance, if you know what I mean. Really? <laughs> uh, it's so hard to believe that that was as recently as, you know... Well, this is, this is 94, 70s. so this is basically at the, 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 the cusp of Britpop and lad culture. Yeah. And it's a quite a savage takedown of saying, you know, you think you're being rebe rebellious, suddenly saying you want to be all carry on and smutty again. It looks creepy. It looks golf club. It yeah. looks seedy uncle. It's the vibe of this all the way through. And this is before you tree and we started just being fascinated by the, these entertainers were all a bit seedy. Mm. It seems to be that thing, I think, has, has weathered very well with it as a piece of it looks great now in a different way than the day-to-day -day does. The day-to-day -day looks like it's predicting whole new areas of comedy and whole new areas of how the news will work. This looks like it's putting a nail in the coffin mm. of the entertainment we yep. grew up with growing yep. up and yeah, makes you look yeah, at it and go, this was shit. This was shocking and shit. I tell you what, though, they did. They they, they wrote this in a huge hurry. Um, they really? talk about it on the commentary, yeah, yeah. Um, but they they had watched quite a lot of Russell Harty. I mean, there are there are yeah, sequences in especially in the Christmas episode that are lifted directly from Russell Harty. Right. But Russell Harty was weirdly such a charmless person to have a chat show. When um, the the Scottish punk band come on, oh, that yes. amazing <laughs> bit that felt like was it the Sex Pistols? Yeah, it Bill felt Grundy. like a yeah, bit yeah, of yeah, a reference to that. Definitely but, a nod to but that. But it it was it. I think I've already said this, but it still it seems so innocent. Weirdly, like that they yeah. were they were meant to be the most rebellious. Well, there's a whiff of thing. Sinead O'Connor would have been yeah, doing that and oh, yeah, ripping up the pose pole thing. There's a feeling of going... Handing oh, out pears. We've got <laughs> Doom McKeon as well being Oh, she's brilliant. incredible. And even the song is, feels really... <laughs> I'm guessing, like, Glenn Ponder wrote that. Because yeah, he Steve does the music. Yeah. No, no, yeah. that was written by um, Nathan Whitehead, who did all the music for Brass know. Eye and Day to Day. Oh, right. Yeah. That, even the song felt like that's the sort of song that was around at the time. Yeah. So perfect. And when he says, you know, it started off well, you whip the skirt off very perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> And then... <laughs> What guests and what worlds will yeah, clash with yeah. Alan's insistence on the beige? What I was obsessed with, it was the accuracy and so many little in-jokes that I thought that other 14-year-old girls wouldn't know and that I really felt like I knew. I felt like it was in a club. Yeah. Oh. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, uh, I must apologise, I had no idea of the full content of that song. <laughs> let, me, let me announce this now. If any young people are watching, let me say this. Whilst it may be all well and good for a rock band to sing about such things, murder, whether it be domestic or street-bound genocide, <laughs> is illegal in this country. <laughs> I think here's, here's an interesting thing, though. I, we, we might be at the point where I can say this now. I think it's got lots of construction problems, this, this show. Um, it was always my least favourite iteration of Partridge. And that's because it's, if it is spoofing a chat show, then the audience wouldn't find this funny. Half this stuff wouldn't make it through to broadcast. He wouldn't have got past mm. one episode. But I, I was with you on this, and I watched it again. This is the rewatch, and where I went, I. Yeah. But that's only if you're aiming to make a really, really good pastiche, Correct. which I think is what they were Correct. doing from that point on. There, yeah. where there's a fly on the wall thing in I'm Alan Partridge, three realistic. This time, I think is very much it was more realistic. Great having its cake and eating it, wasn't that's it? That's really a lovely. 
with this, the, the, the prime purpose of this isn't the same as the day-to-day to make you watch it and go, is this the real news? The prime purpose of this is to make a comedy show. And I went, oh, I'd forgotten how much fun it is to unapologetically make something which is just a load of jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, like uh, the Two Ronnies or the Dick Emery show. It's got a variety show feel to it. It feels like a light end show yeah, it because it's parodying yeah. one. But weirdly, that audience being there and laughing is making... Steve Coogan perform differently. It's bringing the performers up. They all have huge confidence in what they're doing that they wouldn't have without that audience there. All right, here's a good question. Now, you are known as the top chef in your field. You've only got one restaurant. Bernie Inn has thousands. <laughs> Jealous? Doing studio sitcom, it always felt like doing a gig, but on TV. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it always felt like you were performing live. So you can take something from the audience and mm. know that when something's working or not working to go faster and slower. Sanity. What are you doing there? What are you doing? You get out! Why is he still here? Can we... Can someone, can someone remove this clown, please? Where's Steve? The other thing to say is that the writing on this is fucking glorious. It's absolutely glorious. It's so quotable. Yeah. It's so constantly quotable. I've forgotten... In You're fact, not I ordinary think... or French. But it's really clever. Really clever, yeah. And that hysteria you couldn't <clears throat> do if a live audience wasn't there. There's a real... As it accelerates to a point where Alan's got his face pushed into some guy's bare oh, arse. Yeah. anywhere except in this slightly unreal format of there being a live studio audience laughing at the thing going wrong. Most comedy that came after this, because of the influence of I'm Alan Partridge in The Office, went for, OK, the most important thing is this should be believable. And I like the fact, looking back on it, that this isn't believable. It's true and honest, and the characters are all true and honest, and the performances are all true and honest, but I don't believe it's happening. But actually, that's not spoiling it. Mm. Now that character comedy's fallen out of fashion a bit, the idea of centering a whole show around one big character, but then, yeah, I think, like, Jamie's done it with Staff. Yeah, that, that felt like a real splash of this kind of... It made me think, like, when some of the reviews for Staff first um, came out and they said things like um, the fact that it was a letting agent and so on, you know, was a comment on things like that. It was, like, a comment on, like, the market and, you know, millennials being priced out. And I sort of thought, you don't know how really how character comedy works because actually he, that may have been some of the things he considered but I think ultimately you want the best situation for your character that's going to have the funniest things and something that maybe you haven't seen before yeah. I feel like that would be the priority you can accidentally come up with something thematic yeah at the end. Mm-hmm. we're talking about someone says about Stephen King you decide said, deciding what something's about is for draft two hmm. you should just do something that you want to do that you feel in your gut Otherwise, it'll be a bit fake and, and, and it'll be sort of worthy and you won't enjoy doing it. At the end of it, look back on it and go, oh, that appeared to be about Thatcherism. I had no idea. John Sullivan doesn't yeah. know Del Boy's about Thatcherism until he's finished making Only Fools and it's Horses. It's like Nabokov always used to say, I'm writing around X <laughs> rather than about. And I yeah. always say that. Well, it's around. Although recently, it makes me laugh. I, I went to the job with this quite... Um, I'm sure he's not going to listen, no offence. I mean, he's too stupid to listen to this. Um... He wrote a play about 10 years ago 
you know, good on him, but he was still talking about it on about day four of this job. And one day I sort of said to him, thinking he really needs to talk about it still, <laughs> I said, what was it about? And he went, um, sorry, what happened or what was it about? And it was such, <laughs> such a <laughs> pretentious answer. I was kind of obsessed with it because I thought, hey, I actually give a shit. I'm asking to help you out because I think you want to talk about it. I don't want to fucking talk about it. <laughs> And then, but then weirdly, like, I've mellowed and I thought, I do get that there is a difference, obviously. So I sort of went, okay, what happened? Oh, well, it's about someone who kills their child. <laughs> What's it about? Whatever it was, immigration, yeah. something completely different. It really made me laugh. It was also the sorry. Sorry, what happened or what's it about? That person was a writer and they are speaking dialogue for wankers. They're in trouble. They're in trouble. Yes, you should be able to, one of the things you should be able to hear, your ear should be good enough to hear yourself. One of the hard things doing anything where you record yourself or where you have to watch yourself do stuff is to go, oh, God, is that what I sound like? Are those the uh, things I say? Because your, your ears should be tuned for strangers, but also for yourself. You should be able to hear that. Yeah. We don't think, hear ourselves maybe like that's, other people, do we? Maybe that's the key to... God, I've suddenly thought of something really pretentious. I'm going to say it out loud anyway. Go on, go for it. Maybe that's the key to what's brilliant about Alan Partridge is that Alan Partridge can't hear himself at all. But Steve Coogan can hear himself and he pours all of that into Alan Partridge. This is therapy for him. Yeah. And it's really good. And I think it's really necessary for him to put the worst parts of himself into this. Well, that's why I think that's why you can get away with such purple writing in places like this, you know, because some of it is just like, um, I've written some down. I'm going to quote bits. Giggle, that's part of the uh, part of the rubric. Yes, please. Um, until recently in the oatmeal kingdom, hobnobs ruled the roost. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you, can, you write lines like that and go, this is Which episode so is that in? He's so into boasters. It's yeah, boasters, his description oh, of I boaster biscuits is unfucking believable that's, It's brilliant. It's the Christmas that. episode. Oh, okay, great. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, when, when the police turn up at the end of the last episode and they're standing at the corner yeah. saying, knowing me, Alan Partridge, knowing you, the police, aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about also, that. Under his breath, while the titles are rolling and everyone's singing, do, do I, have to go, I have to go? I have to go now. Yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten about that. <laughs> Talking about, um, like, bad links, like, that bit where... Uh, the fashion designer, the important thing to Alan is that she came from Waterloo Station because they're about to play Waterloo for her like entrance yes, music. Yes. And then under it, you hear him saying to her, it's really important that you stress that she came from Waterloo Station. <laughs> the fact that, you know, no one cares, but he ca- he thinks that's the... It's like he thinks the audience is stupid. Well, I think that there's yeah. a feeling all the way through with, with the links and the shit jokes he throws to Glenn Ponder. And the nice subtext of this is that he has followed the rules of how you make one of these shows with mm. a couple of crap puns, yep. some links. Yeah. He's done it all. And he thinks that's enough. And he thinks that that's what entertains a crowd. And you're watching it going, I'm not entertained. And you realise all those those monologues you've watched with jokes you didn't find were funny, all those award speeches that weren't, weren't funny. The number of times you've been given this bland, dry rivita of entertainment and said that's enough. He's thinking but I'm doing all the things I'm meant to do. Yeah, absolutely. Why isn't this enough? And it's like a cargo cult where he's replicating things he's seen in Light End. And it's quite a savage joke there because it's saying, you put up with this shit. It's, it's as savage a joke as, as the, the day-to-day's yeah, why are you accepting news? It's like the Stuart Lee quote, isn't it, about being spoon-fed warm diarrhoea? There is a rage in this at that entertainment. And it's kind of... What's strange looking back on it is it forms the headstone. 
Because yeah. no one after this really did this very much again. And I think that might be why, if you show it to younger people, they go, this is just a bit shit. You don't realise yeah, it's because the it's, thing it's parodying was a bit absolutely. shit as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's, it's, I think they've become too savvy about, yeah, about TV and how it works. And, yeah. and also the fact that TVs change it. We no longer have the front, like the desperation to keep it up, the, yeah. the kind of, oh, it's all going well. Things being casual and going wrong is much more acceptable on TV. Yeah. It feels like there's not that sort of energy to keep up the pretense anymore. Yeah, it's true, anymore. it's true. There's a thing about just the way, it's, the theatricality of it. It's got an open fourth wall and there's an audience on, outside the fourth wall, which is the thing that makes this unique in the Partridge canon, hmm. is that there's an audience there reacting to it. And then the next thing he does, the fourth wall, the set for I'm Alan Partridge had four walls, which was really unusual for a sitcom. So he was behind, he was hidden. And there's a feeling that this is the one where you're seeing the, the front-facing Alan performing mm. how he wants you to see him. And then the next show that comes out, he's hit, this is the behind the scenes. This is the, the one yeah. that really felt to a modern audience, oh, we're seeing behind the scenes of a celebrity. But this yes. has got a real value in saying, mm. this is the front face these celebrities want to show you, and it's shit. You, there's something in the way it's been directed and everything that says this is the variety, the, the tits and teeth version. Yeah. And the next thing we'll do, we'll show you behind the scenes, but it's we're even going to film it as if it's behind the scenes, so you're kept at a distance. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're a fly on the wall in the next one. Yeah, it was a really clever move. It's really interesting going back to this because it's one of the few things I think that people still watch from this sort of the death of this kind of comedy for an with an audience and the bigness and the brashness of it. Mm. We sort of stopped doing it a lot really it's it's split clever people's comedy is done single camera and is a bit low and and people get cancer in it and then comedy like Mrs Brown's Boys is seen to be for a completely different audience it's funny to watch something which is big pure comedy just there to do joke 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 and have it be this intelligent and from these guys from Armando Mm. and and Patrick Marble playwrights and great actors Mm. it's kind of fascinating to go back to it and go actually but it does teach you a lot yeah, I definitely, yeah, I think seeing it at such a formative age had such an impact on me because I think I it had a sophistication about it which other comedy didn't have or I hadn't seen yet. The knowingness of it, the whole TV language thing I was obsessed with. But yeah, I think that was my main takeaway from it that I thought, A, that's exactly what I'd like to do. Like not, you know, I don't want to be an Antigone, like, <laughs> that that and I don't really want to do stand up that is literally it and I didn't really know that existed because from about the age of 7 you know my brother and I had been sort of making we'd still like the camcorder and we'd make sketches where we'd pretend to be like newsreaders and sort of play them back to family members and I didn't even realize that we'd been we'd been doing sketches from about the age of 10 so yeah when I was I must be about 13 14 when I saw it and I just thought I thought it was so cleverly observed and it was articulating like a way of um performing that was sort of realistic but not that was like comedy but not jokes you were just like inhabiting these people and you were exaggerating traits and you were you've not noticed that there was something funny there all along in normal people and the way they behave and Mm. the way people behave on comic relief day and how it's cringe (laughs) like you know all these things I was like that's my sense of humor I think those things but I've never like said them out loud before or seen them reflected back at me. It's it's so, like, tribal at that age when you find... It wasn't until sixth form that I found my mates who found the same things funny as me. So it was also quite like me and my brother would watch this stuff, you know, at home. But my I didn't have friends yet who also liked watching Ellen Partridge. Mm. They were watching, like, 
Only Fools and Horses, which I yeah. I never really got. Yeah. I don't really like it. But it's, fi- it's finding your tribe yeah, it's is the most important thing. thing. And yeah. uh, Margaret Cameron Smith talked about this in the, the tribalness, the ownership of comedy oh my God, is as big as the ownership of a football team or a band or something. And it happens to you at a moment yeah. where you go, I'm looking for my people. Ah, yeah, there you I are. Am... It's like a message in a bottle arrives on the beach. Yeah, I've had it again recently where I've become obsessed with a playwright. When, a, when her plays are on, I see it like three times. And I've got a friend and he's the same. And we were we went to see her give a talk the other night and I realised that I haven't felt this fanatical since I was about 16. <laughs> and it's such a lovely feeling because afterwards we compared notes about who knew the most about her and it was like, no, 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 you're thinking of that interview she did in 2002. <laughs> I'm talking about the interview she did in 2003 when she said that, like, we... It was... I hadn't behaved like that in years. She's called Annie Baker. But to find that, to find the person you want to put the pin up of. Yeah. But that sense of total fandom is not just about saying, I think this person's amazing. It's saying, the people who like this are my people. Absolutely. And you can find it again. That feeling of ownership and belonging is so important. It's so hurtful when someone doesn't like it. (laughs) You know, you take it so personally. Like, I have to say things like, oh, that's interesting. When someone says they didn't like it, because and basically the subtext is we will never be friends. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and equally, I don't think I could be friends with people who like certain things that I don't like. <laughs> but, but with those those tribes, they're destructive. But they're how humanity's got here. Yeah, said, yeah, we, we will be destroyed by this but, at some point because we won't get on. But, but it's a certain it's really, type of brain, isn't it? That uh, that obsessive. Yeah. Type of brain. Well, this, this yeah. obviously, but this obviously fired that in you, and also gave you an idea of if these people are out there, then you could be one of them. And you could even have a career being one of them. And that's the great thing, isn't it? Because you started out there sitting there watching this on TV and going, that's what I want to do. And then 24 yeah. years later, you find yourself sitting on a sofa opposite Alan an actual partridge. that's why it felt so huge. I, I remember, I don't know if this is interesting, but um, the sort of casting came in for it because it, there were lots of different parts and I sort of read for a few and then it was quiet for a few days and I thought okay well that dream's gone that's just something I've always wanted and then it was very last minute actually can you come in tomorrow so it's quite good enough time to think about it but it was a bit like um I was in an episode of Ab Fab when they did a Christmas special it must have been about nine years ago or something and um just, I remember being at that read-through, I sort of had to leave my body because it was too much. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just like literally going back into your childhood. Yeah. These things you watch, like if someone had said to you, and it's a really sort of cliche thing to say, but, but it, yeah, it, it was so strange being that close to him on the sofa. But as I said, I think from watching it so much, I felt so, without having to think about it, so familiar with how people are meant to react to Alan. Again, it's your tribe. You're, basically, yeah. You know this language, you've learned this language, you've been, yeah. this is your culture. Your culture, when people say culture, yeah, and you sort of say, what, what pop culture? You go, no, no, culture like like a culture, like you grow up in. This is like your... Like a yoghurt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, you've developed. You have yeah. found your yoghurt. <laughs> yes, you've grown in that yoghurt. On that Petri dish, you were formed. I'm the Yakult. Yes, you are, yes, I am the Yakult. That's what this is about. <laughs> I mean, yogurt's because, pudding, so it feels well, like that's the right place to end. Someone once said to me that yogurt was quite mystical, and I actually think that's true. <laughs> the mystery of yogurt. I've always thought that yogurt was mystical my whole life. Here's here's proof. So I've started drink taking probiotic yogurt, yeah, and I'm getting the trippiest dreams of my life. 
Really? It's yeah. affecting your reality. If <laughs> comedy's an infection, then partridge is a good bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> but they say they're done. You, your, your brain. I'm so you have, sorry. You have a brain at the top of your body and a brain in your, in your gut, and the, your, your gut bacteria are as individual as your fingerprint, and it's what it responds to and how mm. it reacts to things. And you're putting this nourishment in as a teenager, and how it reacts with you changes who you are and you you were yeah. obviously part of an experiment and I write here with was... my second brain <laughs> in my stomach I just do one with my lizard brain it's just about fear and anxiety <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. but it, it's my it's stomach that... leads the workshop <laughs> I can't I can't <laughs> and my brain does the Q&A that's brilliant uh, I can't. I can't remember which podcast I'm on now it's all got very confusing you're listening you to you don't want to be on the yogurt yogurt chat <laughs> Uh, thank you for bringing so much yoghurt to Yoghurt Chat. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you, Katie. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, my favourite little pots. <laughs> <laughs>